chapter 3, if you would. 2 Peter chapter 3. The assigned title that I received and am happy to embrace is The Temporary Path. How to live in a world destined for judgment. How to live in a world destined for judgment. The Temporary Path. So the, the reason why we're looking at 2 Peter chapter 3 is because of verse 11. Look at verse 11 with me. It says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, we'll look at that judgment referred to by that phrase, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? That's the question raised by Peter at the end of his final letter. We're going to take that question up. We're going to discuss it in, a, in the sense that I'm going to give you what I think Peter is saying in this chapter. And then I'm going to pause at the... Uh, near the conclusion of our time together, and I'm going to make sure that you have ample time to ask questions or make comments yourself. Eleven, we're done at noon. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer right now and ask for His help. Father, I thank You so much for the power of the Word of God to transform our thinking, to lift it out of the natural, human, limited, finite paradigms and structures that every one of us are bound to. And help us to see what You see. To regard time the way You regard time. To have a weight of Your glory settling upon us that says there is a future judgment to come. There is a bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ to come. And He will judge the world. Burn it, in fact, and renew it such that the kingdom of Your beloved Son will live on forever in peace and in glory and in joy. Thank You so much for the Word of God. Help it to sharpen us where we need sharpening, to strengthen us where we are weak, to clarify us where we are battling with confusion. Thank You so much for these brothers that are here now. Thank You for Your Spirit who is here to make much of and glorify Jesus Christ in our hearts. We love Him. We thank You for Him. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Let's read through the first 13 verses. 2 Peter chapter 3, listen as I read God's holy word. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. My aim in this seminar is to stir up your love for God and His promises in this chapter such that you are confident that in the future these texts will be fulfilled as they are taught to us. That there will be a bodily resurrection of Christ and that bodily resurrection of Christ will bring about an upheaval of this world such that the entire world will be engulfed in flames. 
of burning. Much like the way the world was engulfed in water at the deluge. That that's what is in Peter's mind as he writes according to the Holy Spirit so that that future vision of God's judgment of unrighteousness on the earth with fire causes us to be a holy, godly, eager, Christ-pursuing, white-hot-for-God kind of people. Men who lead in those things, in fact. I get that from verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting and hastening the day of God. J.C. Ryle was a 19th century bishop. Here's how he commented on these verses and on his understanding of them, which is the understanding that I'm commending to you. I trust is a is a humble and true reading of Holy Scripture. Listen to J.C. Ryle. Those who denounce the doctrine of the second advent as speculative, fanciful, and unpractical would do well to reconsider the subject. The doctrine was not so regarded in the days of the apostles. In their eyes, patience, hope, diligence, moderation, personal holiness were inseparably connected with an expectation of the Lord's return. I love that sentence. Happy is the Christian who has learned to think with them. To be ever looking for the Lord's appearing is one of the best helps to a close walk with God. Peter was absolutely concerned that sound doctrine be preserved among the early church and that false doctrine be eradicated. He was teaching in chapter 1 Here's an old man now, Peter writing. And in chapter 1, he sets the tone for this final letter that he's written. Look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. His, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So he's writing to his readers, his believing elect Christian readers to the church. And he says, I want you to partake of the divine nature. I want you to partake of it by banking on the promises of God. We just heard so well unfolded for us from Romans 6, the promises of God in Christ. Bank on those. Let them so transform your life that you grow in one degree of glory to another. You are partakers of the divine nature. That will prepare you well not to be corrupt by the sinful desires of this world and to be prepared to make it all the way through safely the coming judgment of God. Paul says we are hid with Christ in God. Christ, as it were, is our asbestos protection around the fiery wrath of God to come. We will not be harmed, but we will safely make it through those who are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins and for the fulfillment of His promises for us, even eternal life. What we are not to do, what we are not to do, the way we are not to live in a world destined for judgment, is that we are not to, with merit and effort and our own striving, rely upon our own strength to try to work up some kind of holiness in us that will cause God to be forced to let us go through the judgment and into His heaven. We are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of ourselves. We are not to, to, to trump up within ourselves any kind of self-effort or earning or meriting All that we have in Christ, including our final passing through judgment and the salvation to come, is sheerly a gift of God's saving grace. Sovereignly, freely bestowed upon us, coming from outside of us, not owing to any virtue or worth or strength of ourselves. And convinced of that, when you know for a certainty that your salvation is all of Christ and all of grace, then you are so united and hid with Him that you can stand firm against all sinful desires that would come and attack you, against all demonic forces that would come and attack you, as Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 
and even against this coming wrath of God. Jesus delivers us from this coming wrath of God that Peter unfolds for us in this chapter. So if our human effort of works is insufficient as a way to live in a world destined for judgment, how then shall we live? Well, the answer is given very plainly in verse 11. Living lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. But there are two emphases careful biblical Christians will give to how we should live in the days prior to the final judgment. Some will say, we should be pilgrims. We should batten down the hatches. We should guard ourselves from sin. We should isolate ourselves as much as we possibly can. We should have as little to do with sinners as we absolutely can. And we should simply ride out the storm coming safely to the other shore. That's the pilgrim impulse. And it's all over the Bible. But in and of itself, it's not the full balanced picture of the Bible. Because there's another impulse in the Bible. The pioneer impulse. The pioneer impulse says, because there is a future judgment to come, and because heaven and hell are real, and because the cross is real, we must labor, we must build, we must win the lost. We must advance the cause of God on the earth. We must see His glory cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. We must go to the nations and to our neighbors, and we must proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We must strengthen our churches and disciple one another. We must raise our children in the love and instruction of the Lord. We must build and invest. That's a pioneer impulse. And that's all over the Bible. Everyone in this room is wired to lean toward the pilgrim or the pioneer impulse. Andrew Walls in his book, The The Missionary Movement in Christian History, The Missionary Movement in Christian History, unfolds for an entire book brilliantly these two impulses, the pilgrim and the pioneer impulse. Both are biblical. Neither is sufficient. Both are biblical. Neither is sufficient alone. His argument in the book and my argument before you is to answer the question, how do you live in a world destined for judgment? You have to both have a long-term transitional view that this world is not my home. I agree with Jesus' prayer in John 17. I am not of this world because He is not of this world. And we are moving to another world for which we were made and designed. Plus, while I am on this journey as a sojourner, an alien, and a pilgrim, I am laboring and working to pioneer the work of God in every area that He has called me to go, such that all who are called to make a pilgrimage through this world are are included and none lost. Peter sets up his answer to his question, the very great debate with the unbelievers, the scoffers, the false teachers that he's going to combat and battle. He sets up his answer in those first two verses I read out of chapter 1, 3, and 4. He says it's the promises of God that are yes in Christ. He points to Christ and Christ being the sole solution. The one who focuses on Christ will ultimately be, in fact, a pilgrim, but will also be a pioneer One who will focus on Christ and His promises will be well preserved for the judgment that is to come. And how to live in this world destined for judgment is to so pursue the holiness of Christ without which no one will see the Lord. To pursue the godliness that Christ alone can achieve in our lives. To wait with eager longing for Christ's bodily return. And to hasten the coming day of God moving forward with a labor and a joining of the mission of Christ while He is patient for His entire number of elect to come in. You can see, even in the way that Peter writes, no word is wasted here, right? No word is wasted in Peter's Holy Spirit-inspired writing. He wants us to live out lives of holiness. That's the pilgrim mentality. Keep yourself unstained from the world. That's the pilgrim mentality. Don't be... Don't be caught up with the corruptions and the sinful desires and false teachings. That's that's the, the pilgrim impulse. But godliness, do what God is doing. Act like God. What is God doing in the world? Build where God is building. Win the lost that God is drawing to Himself. Go to the nations, the tribes, the tongues, and the peoples and engage in godliness, which is the bold missionary pioneering impulse. Waiting 
waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord. Waiting is this, this word that, that talks about the yearning and the longing and the looking to the horizon for Christ to come. That's the pilgrim impulse. But hastening has to do with the idea that we are boldly proclaiming the Gospel and that we are going out to proclaim the Gospel that shall be preached to all the nations and then the end will come to bring in the full number of the Gentiles, Romans 11.25. That's the pioneering impulse. Both the pilgrim and the pioneering impulse are commended to us by Holy Scripture and they are linked together. They are not separated in any way by Peter under the inspiration of the Spirit. He raises this promise back in chapter 1 and then in chapter 2. He gives a picture of why he's absolutely convinced that there is a need for his bold combating against false teaching. He talks about the, the false prophets in verse 1 who arose among the people just as they were, will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them. And he talks about the error and their swift destruction. He talks about how they are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. And he says, don't let false teachers come into your churches, brothers, and don't you yourselves ever become one. Don't let false teachers come into your church and don't let you yourselves ever become one. He says, their destruction is sure. They are, they are existing to do harm to the people of God. And the only value under the broad, sovereign, permissive will of God that false teaching has is to serve as a foil by which the true teaching of the Word of God can be clearly and boldly seen and proclaimed. Then he picks one specific false teaching. The teaching that God in His promise that His Son will return and that there will be a fiery judgment to come, that specific promise has been doubted, questioned, even refuted by false teachers. Look at verses 1 through 3. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So here's what Peter sees. He sees so-called Christians forgetting conveniently about bold declarations such as Malachi 4, 1 and 2. Behold, the day comes burning like an oven when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. But for you who fear My name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You shall go forth leaping like calves from the stall. These false teachers are conveniently forgetting about all the many passages in the Old Testament, Joel 2, 30 and 31, Zephaniah chapter 1, and many other passages which say there will be a future day of the Lord and it means burning. It's all over the Old Testament. And he refers to a commandment of our Lord and Savior, probably referring to something like Matthew 24, 42. Watch therefore, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. I think Peter's referring to a second coming bodily of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason why I think that is because back in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, we read this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. I think he's talking about the same false teachers here. Cleverly devised myths. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were ourselves eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to Him by the majestic glory, this is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. So I think this is Peter's thinking. I know He's coming back bodily because I saw Him transfigured on the mountain. That's Bible thinking for Peter the Apostle. I know He's coming back bodily because I saw Him transformed bodily. That's his thinking. That's why he is absolutely sure of the second coming bodily of the Lord Jesus Christ based on these verses. But it was cleverly devised myths 
that he's so angry about. That's why he's writing this final letter as an aged apostle. He's angry that false teaching has confused people in the church. This false teaching has said, look at how many sunrises, look at how many moons, look at how many years and decades and even centuries has gone by, and we don't see God coming back in any judgment. The sun is warm, but it's not burning up anything. We're not seeing any judgment fall on the earth. We're not seeing any destruction happen. Maybe God wasn't even talking about a bodily return, some would say. Maybe when Paul said in Colossians 2 that we are spiritually buried with Christ and spiritually raised with Him, maybe that's all there was. Maybe there is no spiritual bodily return and the, and the resurrection of the dead to be judged as several texts of Scripture say. Maybe these cleverly devised myths are throwing enough doubt into the second coming of God in Christ and His judgment that then we are free to live our lives completely as, as we would. Our bodies are our own and there is no final accountability. You can read through 2 Peter chapter 2 and realize the false teaching wasn't just an intellectual exercise. It was a cover for sexual sin. It was a cover for impurity and profanity and profligacy. It was a cover for darkness. I have never run into a heretic that I've gotten to know through biography, through history, or personally that their heresies and false teaching have not also been a cover for secret sin. That's why heresies are so very attractive. Peter is saying they are willful in the way that they twist the truths of Scripture. They're willful in the way they are forgetting a few things selectively. He lets them have their, 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 their voice. He quotes them in verse 4. Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. These false teachers have been duped by the regularity of wonder. Duped by the regularity of wonder. The sun keeps coming up. Their heart keeps beating. Babies continue to be born. The stars continue to shine. Our bodies continue to function. Our minds continue to function. And there's this continuation. Animals and cells and nature in all its glory continues to function. And then they start measuring it and start writing it down and start scientifically codifying it and saying, oh, it's ours. We have control over it. We're completely bored with the wonder of creation. Paul says, excuse me, Peter says, they're missing three massive realities about God. His creation, His character, and His call. I want to show you these. His creation, His character, and His call. First, His creation. Verse 5, For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was, existed was deluged with water and perished. He says their heresy is built on the fact that they don't remember that there once was a time when the world wasn't. They've got to remember that the world was created. And then the, when the world was created, humankind on it sinned because of the fall. Adam's sin began to spread and death spread throughout the world such that everyone did only evil continually and God sent a flood. They're forgetting that. God already judged the world once. Why will He not then judge it again? And maybe if He was patient during the time of the sin prior to the flood, He's simply being patient during the time of our sin prior to the fire. They're forgetting the very nature of God. That God in His creation and then ultimately God in His causing of the flood was exacting judgment on the unrighteousness of the world. And he uses the flood and Noah as, as a paradigm for saying we ought to look forward to the future judgment of fire that in fact happened the first time when the flood came. Can you imagine brown water, toxic, rising past every hill and filling up every valley and carcasses bloated of animals and human bodies floating in the brown toxic water and, and, and people trying to do makeshift little rafts that are sinking off in the distance and rain falling day and night so you can't even tell the difference between day and night anymore and, and moms pushing their little babies up onto the last little bit of dry ground hopelessly. That was God's righteous judgment 
on an evil world in the flood that deluged in the days of Noah. Then in verse 7, Peter says, by the same word. Look at the end of verse 5. Out of water and through water, by the word of God, God brought judgment in the flood. Then the beginning of verse 7. But by the same word, the same God, the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You see what Peter is saying to the false teachers and and what the Holy Spirit is saying to us? We dare not have a small, collegial, tame view of God. He's massive and holy and just and is unimpeachable in His bringing of the flood. He shall be unimpeachable in His bringing of fire. It isn't just the creation that Peter sees that they have intentionally forgot or overlooked. He goes on to say, They've also overlooked God's character. Look at verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. You see, the accusation of the false teachers, the scoffers, was it's just been so long. It's just so much time has gone by. How can God possibly be reliable? He, he might not even have the ability to keep that promise if He even made it at all. Maybe His Word is broken for a lot of different reasons, but it's just been so long that how can anybody in their right mind expect that this future judgment of fire is coming? Peter responds by a reversal of massive proportions in their understanding of the character of God. Verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you patient toward you. He's talking to to the believers, I understand. He's talking to the elect here. But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all His people would be brought to repentance. That's my understanding of verse 9. But that all should reach repentance. Do you see what's happening among the scoffers? God is being merciful and patient and long-suffering with them, and they're taking the blessing of God's long-suffering and mercy and patience, and they're throwing it back at Him and saying, you're unreliable, your word can't be kept. Because of their perverted view of His character, they look upon His kindness and His blessing and His mercy and His patience as evidence that He's a liar. This is what we all do. We all take the blessings of God, repackage them and throw them back in God's face as an attack against Him. They didn't see that the character of God is to be patient. He has a plan that all the nations will hear and that people from every tribe and tongue and nation will come in. My gospel shall be preached to all the nations, then the end will come. And and he's saying through Paul in Romans 11.25 that the full number of the Gentiles must come in. And it's God's amazing patience that causes the world not to be destroyed by fire as I'm speaking before the finishing of this sentence. There is patience for nations around the world. There is patience for people groups and, and, and ethnic groups around the world. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. God is engaged in a character revelation of His incredible patience and mercy and long-suffering and kindness. We dare not receive that kind gift of His merciful patience and throw it back at Him as evidence that He is so slow as to be unreliable. But, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Isn't it remarkable how He, how he brings in the teachings of Jesus, this idea that the, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, so fast, so sudden, for unbelievers it will be instantaneous and they won't have any more reason to call Him slow because He comes like a thief to them. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar so swiftly and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. I'm not looking for the the created world to burn up like flash paper. I'm looking for a purification by fire. 
I think when God made the heavens and the earth and called them good, He means for them to be good and remain. I think they're going to be purified here by this fire. Exposed and purified. The reason why I think that is because the goal of this burning is given at the end of verse 13. Look at verse 13. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The reason for the earlier flood at Noah's time and the reason for the future burning is to create a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. It's all about bringing about the righteousness that we have in Christ and are called upon to give evidence to and demonstrate because of Christ. These false teachers deliberately overlooked the creation of God, the character of God, And now, as you can see at the end of verse 9, the call of God to repentance. But God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's my understanding that when every good thing happens in the world, the response of a godly person should be repentance. Or do you not know that it is the kindness of the Lord meant to lead us to repentance? If you have in your mind right now an awareness that God is in fact a patient God and He's not delaying or slow because He's inept or incapable or scrambling for plan B, C, or D, but that He's a very patient God whose plan is unfolding perfectly, then that kindness ought to lead you to repentance, Romans 2.4. It's also my conviction that when hard and horrible things happen on the world, that too should lead His people to repentance. When, when marathons are bombed, the city, the state, New England, the country, the watching world should repent. Do we think that the people who were harmed in the marathon bombing in Boston were more guilty than the rest of us before God? No. No. But in fact, we must repent lest the same thing Happened to us, Jesus said. Good things should cause us to repent. Bad things should cause us to repent. Repentance is the means by which we prepare ourselves, growing in holiness, growing the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is this beautiful picture of relying on and living out the Gospel in a deep, internal, sweet way that has glorious external realities in the way we live out godliness and the call of godliness on our lives. It combines powerfully both this pilgrim impulse and this pioneering impulse that I raised earlier from Andrew Wall's book. I love the way J.C. Ryle talks about this call to holiness. As I was reading and getting ready for this study on 2 Peter chapter 3, I read through the book Holiness by J.C. Ryle. Listen to the way he says it. Would you be holy? Would you become a new creature? Then begin with Christ. You will do nothing until you feel your sin and weakness and flee to Him. He is the beginning of all holiness. He is not only wisdom and righteousness to His people, but sanctification also. People sometimes try to make themselves holy first and a sad work they make of it. They toil and labor and turn over many new leaves and make many changes and yet they feel nothing better but rather worse. They run in vain and labor in vain. Little wonder for they are beginning at the wrong end. They are building up a wall of sand. Their work runs down as fast as they throw it up. They are bailing water out of a leaky vessel. The the leak gains on them, not they on the leak. Other foundation of holiness can no person lay than that which Paul laid, even Christ Jesus. Without Christ, we can do nothing. If I were to reduce, if I were to reduce this charge that Peter is giving to his believing readers to live lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, I would sum it up by following cues from Peter by which he says, we know there will be a future judgment where God will establish righteousness through fire because He has already shown Himself inclined to do that by establishing and removing righteousness through the flood. It's Peter's thinking. 
His argument is, count on God to be the same, and by that same word, He will bring about a fiery conflagration to purify the world from unrighteousness, just as He did so many millennia ago with Noah and the flood. So when I'm asking the question that's posed in verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? I notice the word since. You see it in verse 11? So plain and clear. It means I have to think really hard about what he just told me about God's character and his judgment and his creation and the flood and his call to repentance and his patience and desire that all his people draw and are reaching repentance. I have to think long and hard about that because Peter wants me to let that be my motivation for holy and godly living. Peter wants the character of God, the activity of God in the world, both patience and judgment, to cause and motivate and be an incentive for me to live holy lives. How does that work in your life? As a pastor, as a leader, as a man of God, how is it that the character and handiwork and judgment and patience of God creates in you holiness? How does that work? How is it supposed to work? That's the flow and logic of the passage. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? I think that question is a thrilling question, quite frankly. Three or four different answers come to my mind right now. I'm only going to give you one. And maybe you can think of better ones than this one. But I'm going to give you the one that I think is most helpful in my life. And I'm going to see if it's helpful for you in your life. And if you have any other answers or expansions, I'm going to give you time for that in just about seven or eight minutes. Here's my answer to how that word since functions in the flow of Peter's thinking guided by the Holy Spirit. I think Peter is holding up for us the certainty of future judgment and the bodily return of Christ and that that should not cause us to fear in a fleshly sort of way like we've got to try to lie and cover ourselves and, 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 and with our own merit and effort try to somehow earn our way into God's favor somehow that, as if we could say, I can find a way to, to steal myself against the future flames. I don't think that's what he means at all. That's why I argued against that at the beginning. I think rather he means, just as Ryle said, rush into Christ. Let Christ be your, your ark. Let Christ be the vehicle of transportation through which you are protected and saved through the coming judgment. Trust in Christ. Cling to His promises. Let Him shroud you. Let Him be your asbestos against the fiery judgment of God that will come on the earth to cleanse it from unrighteousness. In other words, I think there's much help to be offered to us if we look at ourselves as present-day Noahs in the sunshine. Noahs in the sunshine. We are Noah before the rain began to fall. We are Noah before everybody was seeing the coming floods. Before the deeps began to surge. Before the, the, the rain began to fall. We're Noah in the sunshine. Ask yourself, what did Noah spend his time doing? Prior to the coming of the judgment. When no one saw the judgment on the horizon. When he looked like the biggest fool for building a boat in a desert. What was Noah doing? I'll offer you three things. One, he was proclaiming righteousness. I get that from chapter 2, verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness. That word herald is the word for preaching. He was preaching righteousness. Every hull that he was fashioning, every mallet drop on the wooden spikes, every pitch that he was putting on the waterproofing of the ark was a heralding of righteousness to the people around him. I regard Noah as first a herald of righteousness. This is this pioneer impulse. He is building something. He's establishing something. He's, he's getting something ready for his family. And he was preaching, as it were, come and repent and join me in this ark because of the very nature and promises of God in his judgment of unrighteousness. Noah was spending his time in the sunshine proclaiming the glorious good news and the patience of our God. And I think, brothers, you were wired, once you became a Christian, once God called you out of darkness into light, you were wired to be a proclaimer of righteousness. You were wired to proclaim that to your wives 
and to your children and to your friends and to your co-workers and to your citizens of this city and state and nation and the globe. You were wired to proclaim it to your enemies. You were wired to say, I'm going to give out and proclaim the very righteousness that God is working in me through His Son, Jesus Christ. I think your Christian life, your pursuit of holiness will be stunted if not aborted until you find a way, whether writing or speaking or communicating in some way, even in Noah's fashion, the proclamation of the righteousness of Christ. It's what you were wired for. What else was Noah doing in the sunshine? I think in the sunshine, Noah was building this ark. And he was building an ark because it was a vehicle of transportation. He was not setting roots down deep in the desert to build a monument to himself. He was building a vehicle of transportation by which he would leave this world. This is the pilgrim mindset. He was building so that he was preparing for a future judgment through which he would pass. He was not building a uh, building with deep down foundations. He was building a movable object, a means of transportation. I think you should view your pioneering building impulses as building something like an ark by which you are anticipating the pilgrim transportation out of this world by God's design. The third thing that I see Noah doing is that he was eagerly looking to the horizon to see if any little hint of a rain cloud was forming. Any little hint of a rain cloud was forming. He was looking to the horizon likely. He would be proved not a fool. God would be vindicated in His promise if He could just see that little hint of a rain cloud forming. I think what's built into verse 12 in 2 Peter chapter 3 is a charge for us to do the same. Do you see the word waiting? Waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord. That word waiting is very often translated looking with anticipation. It's looking to the horizon to see if you can see any smoke. Is the fire of God, is the second coming of Christ, is the return of Christ near? We're told frequently in the Scriptures that it is indeed near. There's a a looking, a waiting, an eager anticipation just as Noah had, and I think that's the very way that we should be thinking and praying and and, and evangelizing and witnessing. If you knew for certain that within mere days the fire and conflagration of God that is referred to here in 2 Peter and elsewhere was about to come on the earth and the earth would be engulfed with flames, who would you call and what would you say to them? I love you so much that if you refuse Christ, you will spend eternity in hell. I need to tell you that He came and that He died and His death is sufficient to wipe away the guilt of your sin. And God will lay all your guilt and the wrath that you deserve on Jesus, on your behalf. Would you trust Him? Would you cry out to Him? There isn't much time. We don't know the time. Jesus Himself didn't know the time. Only the Father knows the day and the hour, Jesus said to us. But there is a sweet, intense burning of urgency that should match the smoky horizon warning of a future burning intensity of judgment. It seems to me that Peter, as he is writing, is saying if you have sound doctrine and if you are not falling prey to the scoffers and the false teachers, you will care deeply about all the elect coming in and that they should not spurn the patience of God but have a memory of the flood that leads them to look forward to a future judgment of justice by fire on the earth. So he says, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, look to Christ and His promises, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So then, read further on with me and listen to the way Peter ends the letter. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting, same word as in verse 13 and also verse 12, since you are waiting for those, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish. That's the holiness of verse 11. And at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. 
Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. That's the scoffers he's just refuted as they do the other Scriptures. Verse 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. I think when people hear us pray, I think when our people hear us preach and teach and counsel, I think when unbelievers hear us evangelize, I think when our children hear us grieve over their sin or give them wisdom in decisions, I think when we are side by side with our wives facing hardships and sorrows or blessings and and abounding in joy, I think wherever we have the opportunity to be seen in authenticity where we're not simply portraying ourselves as some leader or pastor or authority figure but we are being very vulnerable and authentic and open, I think there should be a smell of smoke on us. I think there should be a smell of smoke on us that realizes hell is very, very hot and realizes that God, our God, is a consuming fire. That's how I understand these verses. That's how I commend them to you, brothers. I hope that's helpful. I'm going to stop right now and I'm going to give you a few minutes to pose questions or thoughts or other texts of Scripture or observations that you've made. I want to save some time so that you have ample offer opportunity to make your offering. Any of them are welcome. Yeah, go ahead. When we repent and He cleanses us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, nine maybe, you're saying, where does the sin all go? Well, the sin isn't stuff. It isn't, it isn't like you can put sin in a bottle. It's not like the water in my bottle. Sin is this act of heart and word or deed that I've done that offends God. So there's this tremendous offense against God. He then puts that offense, which isn't a thing, but it's a relationship. He has a relationship with Jesus by which His beloved Son, who deserves none of it, He makes Him to be sin. Jesus takes it on Himself. He who knew no sin became sin, Paul says in order that we might become the righteousness of God. So when we say sin is washed away, it isn't, it isn't like the dirt in my shower that goes down the drain. It isn't a stuff like dirt. It's a relationship with God where I have offended Him by things I've said or done or all kinds of right things that I haven't said or done. So it doesn't go to like a sin dump, but it's in fact cast as far away as the east is from the west, which is really, really far says the psalmist. It's forgotten by God. In fact, he says, I choose to remember your sin against me no more. So if you ever wanted to bring your sin back up to God again, he would say, I forgot all about that. I'm not talking about that. I'm not thinking about that because I choose to forget about that. Jesus paid for it. I'm going to honor Jesus' death on the cross and He really did a wonderful job. I enthroned Him, gave Him the name above every name. He did a great job when He took away your sin and my sin. So let's not talk about that anymore. I forgot about it. Does that help? Thank you for a great question. I wish when I was your age, I had questions like that. Other thoughts, questions, observations, texts, corrections? Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yes. I will, I will put a rainbow in the sky and I will never bring destroy the earth by flood again. That 
is a beautiful promise of God. I don't care what anybody does with the rainbow. It always means God keeps his promises. It only means that. It's the only reason for a rainbow. God keeps his promises. And he is keeping his promise by not bringing another flood. But his character is holy. And the world around us is unrighteous. Thoroughly. And that's becoming more and more clear all the time. It seems to me that in the providence and wisdom of God, he is withdrawing among some places in the world his common grace, which has kept people from rank, bald, dramatic immorality. And he's giving them over to that immorality, which is not merely to say the future flames are a future judgment against that. That's true. I would argue that the very sin he's letting them do is judgment. The sin itself is judgment. It, it does portend and prepare for much worse future judgment, but they are experiencing in their bodies the due penalty of their error now, Romans 1. God won't send another flood. I'm not looking for another flood, but I am trying to smell the smoke. I'm looking for fire. That's a great question. Thank you. You had one too. Okay. Comments or thoughts or questions anyone has? Yeah, go ahead. Yes. So, Yes. Praise God. Right. Yes. 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 Amen. Right. Yeah. Join the club, man. I got it. I'm right with you. Yeah. Holy. There is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holy is uh, both separation, but it's more as, as we heard from Brian Vickers in our, in our pre-conference, holiness is devotion. Get the recording of it. It's incredibly helpful. Holiness is a pursuit of Christ-like devotion. It's an activity. It isn't just an avoidance thing. It's really an error to think of holiness as merely and only separation because then it just, it just creates all kinds of people out there who define themselves by what they avoid. But rather, it's a devotion. It's a pursuit of Christ. And as we pursue Christ, we then, as the end of the, the chapter said, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, you likely, as Jonathan Edwards said, should come to the point where you can mark down and measure that you are no longer under the grip of previous sins that used to have sway in your life, but you are experiencing victory through Jesus Christ over that area of sin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Looking to Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Let me let me take a stab at an answer and then. Sure, I hear you. I, I'm so so thankful for your question, Randy, and I, I think you're speaking for everybody here. It's not just you. No, I know, but I, but I know you are. I've been in the pastorate long enough to know that you are speaking for everybody. You're certainly speaking for me. Um, let me try two things, and then maybe you and I can talk later. Um, 
One is, the problem is that we have to repent of our repenting. When we bring sin to God over and over and over again and ask for confession, we repent of our sin, we end up need to eventually repent of our repenting. I'm sorry that I'm repenting again for this, Lord. So the problem is multiplied. The second thing I want to say is, Peter seems to be fully aware of that difficulty within his people because he started with verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. You see that word knowledge there in the middle of verse 3? He's saying, fundamentally, what you know of Christ in the depth of who, of who He is and who you are will help you not continue to fall into sin, but will in fact grant you progress in His own glory and excellence. It's like Paul in Romans 6 said, Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? No. Do you not know? In other words... This idea that we know all our theology and have it all right in our heads, it just hasn't reached our hearts, is not the way the Bible talks about our problem. It says you don't know something. It says, do you not know? So there's this, this deep discovery of who Christ is in all that He is for us in His Word and all that He promises to be for us by the presence of His Holy Spirit in our lives that will make the majority, the, the, the large lion's share of this devotion, this pursuit of holiness, which is devotion. That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is, remember that sin always makes promises to you. The way sin functions in your life is to make you a promise. You will feel really good if you just give me half a glance. It never makes the same promise twice. Once you give in to that promise, it will always make a different promise leading you further away from Christ and deeper into destruction and into corruption. Sin is constantly making promises to you. Peter says you have greater promises from Christ by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them, the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, the holiness that you want to pursue. So what I'd, what I'd offer to you is a mass in your mind, an arsenal of promises from God that are greater promises by their very nature than the promises and lies of sin. If you are tempted to, to fall into sexual sin, think long and hard about the promises that were given in the Bible for what genuine intimacy is like and you'll skip the false intimacy that the promises of pornography and sin offer. The whole point of pornography and sin, sexual sin is an offer of false intimacy. But God says, through His Spirit and His Son and all His people and all the blessings of His people, the 20, 30, 40, 60, 100-fold brothers and sisters that will get following Christ is genuine and true and sweet intimacy without which there is, without any sorrow added to it, without any defilement or profanity or darkness or impurity added to it. That's an example. But that's true for every struggle in the Christian life. There are promises of sin which are lies and they're false and they're empty and they're gravel and they are vomit. Don't go to those promises, but combat them with better promises from God's Word. That has helped me hundreds and hundreds of times in my Christian life. We have a really old one and it goes on when the twins play. Very practically then, very practically, I, I told a guy in my office three days ago, get rid of your internet. <laughs> what did you say? <clears throat> Are you kidding? My, my bills, my I, I, shop, shop, the sports, uh, news, uh, weather, I just can't do it. Get rid of your internet. And then he came to me Sunday and he says, I got rid of my internet. Whatever you have to do. Gouge, eyes, cut off hands, whatever you have to do. Yes. Yeah. Amen. We can surely talk more. Uh, I'd love to hear more. Um, we have two minutes for any other thoughts or questions anyone has. Yes, go ahead. What's your name? Um, Jahi. Jahi. Uh, question. Uh, just, just a Chapter 3, verse 11? Yeah. 
that's behind it. I think that's embedded in it and behind it. I'm, I'm correcting you false teachers. Believe the truths about God and His creation and the flood and His patience and, and His call to repentance. All that is true. And now go live knowing that's true. I think that's right. I think that's a helpful way to summarize it. What I was pressing us all to, and I still feel like there's a lot more room for me to think about this, was how does that truth of all that Peter said about God motivate me? How does it grab me? How does it form a fire inside my soul so that I want to pursue devoted devotion to Christ in holiness? That's the thing. I don't want to just do holiness because somebody at a conference told me I have to or because I just read something and I just said, okay, I've got to screw up my effort and I've got to go out of here and try to figure out how I'm going to be holy. Okay, I'm going to drive 55 instead of 60. There it is. I'm holy. I don't want that. What I want is a fire in my heart that says, Christ, my eyes are fixed on You. You are the promise maker, the promise keeper, and You are the one to whom I want to grow in the grace and knowledge of So work yourself in me. Fix my eyes on you. Run the race with endurance, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let me pray and talk with any of you who wants to after this. God, thank you so much for meeting us. Thank you for 2 Peter 3. Uh, Please guard these dear brothers from any imbalance or error that I have communicated. Uh, Help them instead to fix their eyes on you and on your word and to see you rising out of the text and want to live passionately holy lives that are in keeping not only with your cross and resurrection, but in keeping with your, your glorious character to be revealed in a future judgment that will cleanse the world of all that opposes you. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for loving us. Our love back to you is only in response to your great love for us. Now go... Uh, with us into this lunch hour and into the sessions of this afternoon. And then, Lord, help us be good stewards of every good thing we've learned at this conference as we go back to our wives and our ministries and our locations of, of living. We ask it in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Blessings, brothers. Thanks for coming.